The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Mr. Benjamin Rock, proud owner of BenRock.com. It's pretty exciting to have BenRock.com. Every time I go to BenRock.com, I'm like, what fever dream am I living in? <laughs> it's such a great story. And if you didn't listen to our show last week, what's wrong with you? Go back and listen to last, last week and hear Ben Rock talk about getting BenRock.com for the first time ever. Yeah. Or just feel free to you just hit me up on Twitter and I'll, I'll, I'll just bore you with all the gory details of how I got BenRock.com for the first time since the internet has existed. Me, BenRock, has BenRock.com. And, and if you're wondering... And I, and, and so everyone no who did listen to it now is going to be super bored because now we're just rehashing it completely. And, you know, even the week before that, we kind of did the whole thing. So so we're, well, I, let's just move. Just, no. There's just one other thing that I want to I, I mention about this, though, that I happen to know another guy also named Ben Rock, and I reached out to him to see... If he wanted any representation on the website. Yeah, or like, like an email address. Like, you could give him yeah, an email address. Yeah, I could totally give him an email address. And he was like, no, 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 I'm cool. Yeah, he, but, does, uh, he doesn't care. He lives up in uh, near Seattle, I think, and he's a dungeon master. Like, oh, wow. uh, D&D dungeon master. Ooh, and, he uh, could get, yeah. like, dungeon master at benrock.com. That would be pretty slick. He could. Yeah, yeah I, I would be happy to give the other Ben Rock. And there are more Ben Rocks, but he's he's the other one who I've spoken to the most. All right, so Ben, let's dive right into this week's episode, which features fantastically talented director of photography, Eric Kuritz. He shot the last arc of Ozark, and we talk a lot about that. And we also talk about some of the the other uh, great projects he's worked on. And uh, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're about to can't wait to hear it. Dive into that in just a minute. But let's talk about our close focus this week, which is I think a, a wonderful sort of like compare and contrast. Con- compare and contrast. <laughs> compare. <laughs> compare. Actually, I like that better than compare and contrast. Yes. So we should talk about the box office because of course there was a new Doctor Strange Marvel movie and continuing to go strong at the box office is another mm-hmm. little movie called Everything Everywhere All at Once. Now, of course, Marvel, it's an incredibly successful studio and the latest Doctor Strange is no exception, but one of the ways, one of the metrics of tracking the success and continued success of a movie is its longevity, it's, is its legs and what a percent of box office drop-off that they have from one week to the next. And what do you think the drop-off was between last week of Doctor Strange and this week's box office of Doctor Strange? Any idea how much people stopped going to see that movie i'm gonna say the drop off was 17 percent. no it was 80 percent 80 percent yeah 80 percent fewer tickets sold for doctor strange this week as compared to last week now there's another movie you and i've both seen it we've talked about it on the show everything everywhere all at once what do you think its drop off was this week from last week uh i'm gonna say it went up it went up 10 percent. it did not go up it went down, but it only went down 11%, which is is really not very much considering it is also on track right now to be the highest grossing movie A24 has ever released. It's going to make 50 million a year anytime now. It's 47 I mean, plus million. Have you million. seen it yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I loved it. 
that is a movie that is impossible not to like. It's the, no, it's that's not so true. Great. There are people. The guy next to me got up and walked out in that movie, and it is polarizing. It is not like something you've that most people have ever seen before. And if that's outside your comfort zone, I'm just gonna zone, go out on a limb. I'm gonna go out on a limb right now and say the guy sitting next to you don't know who he was. Total yeah. asshole. <laughs> he probably was. He went through the movie like two thirds of the way from the movie and like got up, shook his head, and walked out. <laughs> Man. I can count on I can count on one hand which movies I've walked out of in my life. Yeah, well, this guy clearly wasn't into it. But I got to say, most of the people I talk to really into it. And it's one of those movies that like here, I, I saw the trailer really early and it, it got me excited about going to see it. But if you don't know anything about it, if you haven't seen the trailer, I'm going to encourage you not to watch the trailer. I don't think you should watch anything about this movie going in. The blanker slate you are, the better. Would you disagree? Would you think you'd want to know about this movie before you go in um, there? I, I had seen the trailer, but the trailer kind of only posits the questions that the movie posits. It doesn't really show you anything. I mean, I think it's always better to see a movie knowing as little as humanly possible. If you think you're going to kind of like the movie, then just go. I'll never forget. It was the first time that I was like alone for a weekend when Alicia and uh, Matt and my son were out of town. And I called Bob DeRosa and your wife. Yes. And I called <laughs> okay. my friend, my friend and frequent collaborator, Bob DeRosa. And I'm like, I can go to a movie. What should I go see? He's like, have you seen Ready or Not? I'm like, I have never even heard of Ready or Not. He's like, don't watch a trailer. Just go see it. And I saw it. And it was like one of the best experiences. So to me, movies I could name that I saw without knowing anything about them would be like Pan's Labyrinth. Let the right one in. Uh, ready or not those are all great movies to see tabula rasa and i would uh very much say that everything everywhere all at once there's no way to spoil this movie but also the less <laughs> it's pretty you hard the to even explain this movie but <laughs> yeah yeah now now here i'm gonna blow your mind if there is an actual multiverse in our universe yeah. is there a multiverse where everything everywhere all at once is underperforming and dr strange <laughs> is significantly up well, of course, but, you know, I, th I think the multiverse is also the biggest cop-out, you know, movie device of all time that, that, you know, it's the ultimate deus ex machina. But I think it's pretty funny. And I bring up this comparison, too, because, of course, the Doctor Strange movie is the multiverse of madness and uh, everything everywhere all at once is also a multiverse movie. So if you were to go see both of them, you'd be really getting your fill of multiverses. And then you might as well go watch Spider-Man, too, because, you know, it's uh, also <laughs> all, I mean, I haven't seen the Doctor Strange movie yet and, and not for lack of trying. I just haven't had a chance mm. uh well but, there's a lot more a lot more empty seats this week yeah that's true but i have to say that all of these movies that we're describing are uh, wildly entertaining and i cannot wait to see the doctor strange movie and i love it by the way that like we're taught we're comparing like a sam raimi movie that's right one of my all-time <laughs> favorite directors to a cool scrappy indie film directed by the daniels that's honestly just all heart and so well done and so subversive and cool and i'm glad that we have two very different poles even though they are both multiverse movies which is weird but we have two very different poles that are drawing people back into the theater and kind of showing that the theater still has legs i do wonder if the drop off of the Doctor Strange box office maybe has more to say about us coming out of a pandemic and people still not being fully confident to go sit in a movie theater uh, or as many people confident to go sit in a movie theater. So all the diehards went and saw it opening weekend and then everyone else is like, eh, it'll be on Disney Plus and I can... Uh, <laughs> 
and I, before I, you know it. I want to see it on the big screen. I think it looks really cool. But yeah, I actually really want to see it too. And our producer, Alana Cody, actually, she saw it this weekend and she said it was great and actually surprisingly scary and very Sam Raimi. So there you go. That, that's what I keep hearing is that it's a fun return to form for Sam Raimi, who, in my opinion, hasn't really made a capital S Sam Raimi movie since probably before. Yeah, I'm going to go with Drag Me to Hell. Drag Me to mm. Hell, two, 2009. All right. Well, supposedly the pace is frenetic as well, too. So it, it really moves. And uh, I, I think that's kind of the way you should watch all Marvel movies. Just kind of like let it wash over you. If you if you stop to smell the roses or think about it far too much, uh, that's when the plot holes start appearing. So better just to buckle up and go for that ride. So anyway, so Ben, hey, let's get to the interview with Eric Koretz. Let's do it. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so joining me now is Eric Koritz, who is the cinematographer for, uh, our co-cinematographer for this final leg of Ozark, one of my favorite shows on television. Hey, thank you so much for joining us on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you for having me on. So, Eric, you and I have known each other for uh, a long time, yeah. and I've been following your career a little bit here on social media, and, and every t- once in a while I see your name pop up in the credits, but uh, I'm really thrilled for you. This not only is one of my favorite shows, it's a really, really big hit for Netflix, and a lot of people are, are paying particular attention to how they wrap this all up and if they're going to stick the landing. You know, right. spoiler alert, I watched it, totally stick the landing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, How did you come to, uh, to be a part of Ozark? I was recommended by a camera operator, Ari Isler. We had worked a bunch together in the past. Uh, he's a friend of mine. And then I'm inter- interviewed with Sean, who uh, we had known of each other's work, of course. Um, Sean's uh, Sean in- Kim. Sean Kim, yeah. Incredible DP. Yeah. He uh, has been on since episode one of the season. And then finally I met with Jason. And uh, Jason, we had a 20-minute interview. And then Jason said, okay, I just, I just really wanted to make sure you're not an asshole. So... That was well, it. yeah, Jason Bateman, <laughs> n- notorious jerk, that Jason Bateman. So, no, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know if you ever listened to his podcast, but oh my god, yeah, nice. I just, it's you know, great. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> it's really fun. It's really good. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan. Uh, huge fan of all of stuff. And it seems like most things in this industry, it's who you know. It's you know, right. it's you got you, you got connected to some people, and they said, "Come on in." You had some good meetings, and look at you now. Now, now you, uh, you, you yeah, got to finish out the season, which is yeah. great. And and that's it is important, like networking and, and meeting people. You know, I'm a natural recluse, but I'm also social, so I'm a weird mix of those things. So sometimes I have to force myself out, but uh, yeah, it's it's important. Us ambiverts don't get a lot of attention. It's always the extroverts and the introverts, but the ambiverts, yeah, we're overlooked. Right. Amb- so, uh, ambiverts, that's the word. <laughs> that is, that, that's what it is. So you're coming to a series that has well-established look, and you know, uh, other cinematographers from the series, like Ben Cutchins and Armando Salas, they've been on the show before too, and we've talked yeah. extensively about the look of the show. When you come into a show, I want to say in the you know the the waning hours, so to speak, how do you treat your responsibility for this? I know there's sure. going to be some sort of attitude of like, well, just don't fuck it up, but at the same time, right. there's also like you want to be consistent, you want to maybe make it your own a little bit. Tell me about your right. your process of coming into this uh, the show near the end. Right. Well, like you kind of alluded to, you can't just come in saying I'm not I, I can't fuck this up because if if you're not taking chances and risks, then you're you're not doing a service to the show. And uh, Armando and Ben had just an incredible job with previous seasons. I, I love their work so much. Ozark is one of my favorite shows. I mean, I definitely knew the look. 
And I think with my work, one of the reasons why they brought me on is I'm sort of a chameleon in my work. If you look at my IMDb or, or my, any of my commercials, I don't really have one style. I sort of change it based off of what the story is, what's called for. You know, you could see style in some of my work, but it's not, it's not singular. So I'm not going to lie. It was, it's very difficult coming into a show halfway through when the look's established, the crew's already there. But the, uh, the amazing thing is, is that, I mean, this crew is some of the best in the business. They make it really easy. And once you talk to them and see the flow of things, and then you can, you see how Sean had been doing things previously in such an incredible way. And then you add your own flourishes to it. It felt pretty seamless to me. Maybe just because this is how I always loved to light. It's, you know, it's about shadow. It's about character. It's about story. And the cinematography in Ozark, as you know, is a character in the story. It's, it's telling the story uh, in ways that a lot of other shows don't do. So it just felt right the moment I started shooting day one. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember talking to, I believe it was Ben ages ago about like the, the giant negative fill fly swatter that goes yeah. over the bird's house. And it's like, yeah. that's not, that's not something that you see most often. Like no. they just, you know, massive, I don't know what it is like 20, 30 by of, of neg fill. But yeah. I mean, and for our listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, we're basically talking about uh, a giant black piece of opaque fabric, which is to block out the sun completely and yeah. actually enhance, enhance the shadows and the rigging that is required for that in the time and to move that and to, to follow yes. the sun and everything else. Uh, that's a that's a major set piece, but it's it also creates that really cool look, the daytime look, which doesn't look like daytime or your typical daytime. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and we have an incredible grip team. Landon Rudell is the key grip. And I think what's unique about Ozark is that we start with the negative. So we start by taking out the sun because when you take out the sun, then you can shape the light to how you want it. And we had a, a joke that, there's no sun in Ozark. It was kind of a joke. It was true, really. <laughs> so we would start by 20 buys, 30 buys on what they call lulls. Take out the sun, then, you know, we'd bring in the light. Edison Jackson's the gaffer, uh, incredible. And we would just, you know, we'd shape it how we wanted to because the, the light tells such a story in, in Ozark, you know, the darkness and the light, you know. Tell me a little bit about the camaraderie when a series reaches its end, because you, sure. you got to be there really. For, I mean, this, this show's not coming back, at least I highly doubt it, but it, they, they really wanted to have a, a finite story. Uh, the finite story was told, but at least in my experience, when I've been on shows that ended and there was, it was a happy ending, people you know knew that it, it had run its course. Uh, right. Many of the, the people that I worked with were like friends for life, people who I, yeah. I felt like we'd kind of gone through a whole thing. I right. remember when uh, I'd been on a show for a long time and the parties and the, the socializing and everything else. What's it like uh, ending a series in the pandemic? What's, yeah, what's, what's I that mean, about? it's strange and familiar at the same time. You have to be cautious because if you're not not safe during the height of the pandemic, you know, you can take out half the half the show. But um, most of this crew who are, are just so incredible and they they had been doing this show for some of them for all four seasons. You know, if, if they didn't live in Atlanta, they'd come back, you know, every year. And they're so such a tight knit group. So it's a little bit different coming in halfway through the final season where, you, you know, you haven't been there all that time, but I, I st it still felt like family and the producers and Jason Bateman, they all call, they say it all the time. The crew is family. It's really great but when you can, you're bonding with everyone and, and it's symbiotic. That's the way to do it, really. So have you watched it yet? Have you watched the show? 
No, can you tell me what happens? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell you what happens. But I'm, just, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, you know, I know some people who they don't necessarily like to go watch the stuff that they did. And I, other people, that's the only way that they can learn and everything yeah. else. But how was the experience of, of watching uh, watching your work for the finale? Honestly, it was always hard for me to watch my work after I've shot it because I I just see the mistakes. Um, it's just my personality. And so the first time I saw it, we had a ceremony like two weeks ago. It was a premiere of the first two episodes and it was in New York and all the cast um, was there. A lot of the crew was there uh, and we projected it, which I had never seen it, you know, fully projected before. You know, it's a TV show. So that was incredible, incredibly nerve wracking. But I was watching it and I, I actually could separate, I could separate myself from the experience and, and really appreciate it, especially Blown Up, which is, I, I loved it. And I, I was... A, even happier that people would stop fucking asking me what happens at the ending now so I can uh <laughs> yeah that's right so yeah, I don't have yeah, to say yeah, that yeah. anymore <laughs> what I what I would tell it uh, what I would tell everyone is that everyone dies and then, uh, <laughs> but that's not true <laughs> they, they, but inevitably we all die you know it's, we're, we have a finite finite period of time if you go forward to the logical conclusion everyone dies that that's was my it. that was my point exactly <laughs> existentialism uh, exactly I, I'm, I'm so glad that we could uh, we could bring existentialism into, into this conversation so, always so so eric what would you like to talk about uh in regards to ozark is there something oh, i didn't wow. ask you about here that you want to get into i like I'm, I'm gonna turn the tables on you and let you oh, uh, direct this conversation a bit. wow very unexpected well i mean i think one thing that's unique about ozark is how we use depth of field and i think it's unique in that the shallowness of focus really tells the story in a lot of ways that other shows don't or don't do all the time like we do. So, you know, a lot of times we're shooting wide open. Sean brought in these beautiful knock to Lux 0.95, like as Liam uh, Snow is the most incredible focus puller and he would just, you know, push in 20 feet fast and he'd nail it, you know, every time and cord or change how the focus rolls and tell the story that way. So, I mean, that's, that was really refreshing to be able to do that all the time and, and tell the story that way. I mean, Ozark really is a cinematographer's dream to shoot it because it's, it's about, it's obviously about the characters, but you use every tool that you can possibly do to, to tell the story with the cinematography. And the directors are, are incredible as well. They, you know, Amanda Marsalis, who directed the first two episodes, she has a, a totally different style than Melissa Hickey, who directed episode 10. And then Jason Bateman obviously has his own particular style. But what was unique about it was that the producers, they really allow the directors to sort of tell the story in their own way. There's no one really looking over their shoulder saying, no, don't do that. Don't do this. It's great because you're shooting it like you're shooting a movie. And that was one of the things that Jason and I talked about before I came on is that it's a, a movie making process as opposed to like your normal TV making process and using all those cinematic tricks in, in the story. Oh, that that's for sure. There is one shot that I look forward to every time I see them on the series. And I got to say, you can pick them out, I would say, particularly actually from television of a certain era, but I don't see used very often, but became a real, I feel like, signature piece of the show, which is it's almost an establishing shot of inside the building, looking out through a window as a car pulls up. Right. That happens throughout yeah. the series over and over again. True. And there is like this sense of foreboding if it's, you know a 
black Lincoln SUV versus, yeah. you know, you, you, you don't know who's getting out of these vehicles. Right. There's a lot of like, you know, establishing shots. Sometimes no other characters in the frame. Oh, yeah. it's, it's through through the hotel f- window. Here comes a car that's pulling up. What's going to happen next? And it's like, it's a really effective way of setting the scene. And for me, it never gets, it never got old. It never got boring. It's like, you know, this yeah. is how I know we're entering into the next bit of business. Yeah. Did, was there a name for that shot when you were guys were shooting the show? Do you, you know exactly what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, I know you what probably, you're talking about. I think that happens often in the show because we're not in a rush. We're not cutting to overs and back and forth and, you know, we're really letting the scene play out. So, you know, for example, in episode nine, when we're just, uh, we start on, you know, just a whiskey glass as Jason and Laura's taking out these glass bottles and pouring and then just letting them kind of sit down and walk off frame, but you stay on the glass. Oh, there's no um, story obligation to just cut to the chase. We could really let let it have space and play out. And I think that creates tension in some ways and it allows the viewer to sort of soak in who these characters are. And they are, all these all these actors are incredible with just their facial expressions or, or certain movements and they've got it down so well and just allowing that to play out in the frame. So we didn't name it, but there's, there's, a, reason, <laughs> there's a reason for it. It's, it's creating space and uh, breath and all of those beautiful things. Yeah, you, you have to have that. Otherwise, you, you lose the impact if it's, everything is just, you know, back to back to back to back. You got to have those moments for sure. Yeah, yeah. You worked with, uh, you know, Jason Bateman directing uh, an episode, A Hard Way to Go. Yeah, uh, yeah. What, what, what was that experience like? Was it as grueling and as demanding as I <laughs> imagine it was? <laughs> so grueling. <laughs> no, I mean, Jason is, is such an incredible director. You know, he's been, he's been in this business so long and he's so, he knows precisely what he wants He's really a, a master technician in, in the vein of Fincher and some of these other more technical directors. And, you know, even when he's an executive producer, so, you know, even when he wasn't directing the first three episodes that I did, he would come in and talk about shots and suggest shots and, you know, discuss things with the actors. He could, it's weird to see him separate from Marty Bird and then suddenly become Jason Bateman and director, producer and talk about shots. It's, at first it was threw me off because I was like, Marty Bird's talking to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, he's he's incredibly precise. It was incredible working with him. I, yeah. I had the uh, good fortune to meet Jason at the right after the ArcLight premiere. I think it was season two of of Ozark. And, oh, cool! Uh, hell of a nice guy, just incredibly oh, yeah. nice guy. Yeah, and, and and so down to earth and and incredibly uh, knowledgeable and great at his craft. I didn't yeah. expect to be such a fanboy, but you yeah, know, I, 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 w- I was totally a fanboy. It was it was nice to meet him, and I, I like some of his other work and stuff. And I'm I'm glad that you got uh, got the experience because I hear the same thing from everyone who works with him. I always hear that he's you know he's he's one of the real good ones. He's one of the real yeah. good ones in town. So it's true. He's a craftsman too, and sure. you can see it. You can uh, see it in the finale for sure. You absolutely can. It definitely comes through. So, Eric, let's uh, shift gears a little. Yeah. How did you get the bug for this? When did you realize that cinematography was a career that you could do, and yet you were going to do? You know, I I was kind of dragged into it. I would say I was when I first went to undergrad for graphic design, and I always did music videos and EPKs and shot my own stuff, but I never. I thought of it from a filmmaking, like a directing perspective. I wrote things and then I'd been doing that for a while and wasn't really liking it. And I actually applied to AFI on a whim. I thought to myself, okay, I'm just going to apply for cinematography just so I could learn the camera, not knowing that most of the students in the class, actually all of them had like years of experience and were actual cinematographers when I was not. 
and I got in with a very weird portfolio. You know, I, I had, I always did photography. So that was part of it. And I did some weird animations that I shot and then animated over. And so I got in and then after year one, I was like, you know what, actually, I think I'm going to be a cinematographer. And then from then on, it was just a full end dive. I started doing documentaries. I had one that went South by Southwest. Um, then I started from that. It was a lifestyle documentary called Dragon Slayer, which is about this skateboarder named Screech. And it was very, it was all with a 5D that was in the 5D first came out and we're using it for video. And so it was very cinematic in a way that documentary, a lot of documentaries weren't at the time. And so that's segued into that style of commercials. And I started doing a lot of commercials, but for me, ultimately telling stories is what I, I love. And so I love doing commercials, but uh, you know, film and TV is where my heart is. So I always go back to that and I love it. Yeah. Well, AFI, you know, it, it's a conservatory. It's a really different experience, I think, than a lot of film schools. And uh, and you're very fortunate to, I think, have gotten your uh, your your master's degree in, in, in filmmaking yeah. and filmmaking and cinematography there. They, I, they um, really have a, have an interesting approach. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it made me a cinematographer. I was not before AFI. And it's it's unique in that you just devote, you don't have free time or life what your first year at AFI because you, you're seven days a week shooting and in class and screwing in other people's uh, projects. And um, lately, the past few years lately, uh, every once a year, I've been going back and, and uh, teaching a lighting seminar once a year, which I love because the theme of my, my class is what not to do. And in, instead of telling them all the great stuff I've done, I tell them all the times I've fucked up and uh, how the bad experiences that I've had and how to learn from that and make it a positive. And also, you know, I talk a lot about getting your mind and body right, because this is such a fucking hard business and you really need to get all of that right, whether it's through meditation or through eating correctly or, or just, or just however you do it working out at uh, yoga, just so that you can be in this for the long haul, because it really, this business fucks yeah. you up. Uh, I think the, the, the number one thing is sleep deprivation. I think yes. sleep deprivation is like, if, if you don't do well with, with sleep deprivation, then yeah. Or, or find ways to, to, you know, pay that sleep debt back. Like when you're, when you're not working, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go for 12 hours tonight. Going to try right. and really like ma make it up because, because yeah, yeah it, it'll, it'll take it out of you. It'll take you out, out of you in a, in a real way that is, yeah, I, I know it's not healthy and we've all kind of signed off in, in one capacity or another to it. But, uh, right. but yeah, I think that getting yourself straight on on all those things is, I think your class sounds amazing. I wish that class existed when I was in film school. It, it ah. sure it sure didn't because that's not the stuff that people tell you. They tell right. you they you know they, they either give you pie in the sky like oh everything's going to be great or oh it's so hard and you're you know you're going to have to claw your way into, into everything. They don't actually give you that like hey you better be prepared. You better be prepared and here's how it can go horribly wrong. Right. And and I think that that's really awesome that you're giving back to you know I would say kids at the at AFI but they're not kids. It's, they're you not know, kids. They're yeah. students. They're all professionals who. <laughs> Right. Are coming in there to sharpen their tools, so to speak, in a way. So that's right. really awesome. I, I think that's great. All right. So AFI, you're in AFI. You've completely changed your life around. When you get out of AFI, are you just immediately shooting like, you know, these these giant commercials and stuff that you're working on? Or well, tell me a little bit like the, yeah. hey, I've graduated. What comes next? I mean, my career has had so many twists and turns, but I had a friend that was directing a documentary on Wikipedia. So basically I shot his documentary. We went around the world. We interviewed lots of Wikipedians, uh, you know, Jimmy Wales from Wikipedia, you know, celebrities. And it was my first sort of experience of like, you know, picking up and going and having a career because you talk about it during while well, at AFI, but you don't, you know, you're not doing anything until you get out, really. You just don't have the time. So that was it. And then 
also at the time I was, I was very into equipment as you, as you know. So, you know, I had a blog and that's, I wasn't, I couldn't afford equipment. So I was, well, the way to do it, I thought was, okay, I'm just going to write about equipment and then I'm going to ask manufacturers to send them to me. That way I can get equipment that I would now not be able to get and it. And it actually really worked. So, um, you know, I ended up getting gear and I would use it and write about it um, and either send it back or keep it. And, and then that just led to better projects because I, I don't want to say the equipment is the reason, but, you know, I had the proper gear to shoot things uh, sometimes and then just keep going. So, and then... Uh, it's certainly you know, helpful then, if you have some gear, for sure. Yeah, it's, exactly. If you have access, if you yeah. want to shoot and you don't have anything to shoot with, if you can get you it, gear. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 you know, it's pretty tough to golf without a set of clubs. Yeah. I'm just saying. It's yeah. like, or, or, or no ball. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, you get, there's a couple things that... Can't you know, golf without uh, a ball. <laughs> it's, it's really tough. <laughs> it's, like, it's just visualization at that point. And right. Every shot's a hole in one. I, I don't know. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, well, but it's maybe only... It's only maybe a, it's better to golf without a ball than... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's all in your brain at that yeah. point. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately or fortunately, cinematography is fairly collaborative. And if you want other people to enjoy it, too, you, yeah. you, you know, th there's just, you know, the painter can't paint without the brush. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you start this blog. And I think yeah. that's actually around the time that you and I actually met each other was, I think, I when, so. uh, when when you were doing that. And yeah. uh, it was really nice, actually, if I recall correctly, because, uh, you know, I think we met and we had lunch and stuff. I would get hit up all the time by people, people who I would say were not qualified to review gear or not sure. qualified just because, you know, there, there are people on the Internet and so like, oh, I want free gear. I'm going to reach right. out to someone. But right. when you and I met, it was like, holy shit, this guy's the real deal. This guy like knows all the stuff. He's worked in the place and, you know, we could have a real conversation. And nice. uh, immediately you, you you jumped out and stood out to me. It's like, oh, I, I should pay attention to this guy. This guy is, you know, ambitious and he's going to be going places. He's He's got his act together. So so Thank you're doing you. the blog thing for a while, but then you start picking up commercials, right? Was commercials yeah. the first place that you really got some traction? Yeah, I mean, commercials is what really uh, took off for me. And uh, I was shooting a lot of commercials and I, I was, you know, I was gone eight, nine months of the year just doing that. And I loved it. And I was traveling all over the world, but I knew I wanted to be t doing a movie and telling stories. And so the first film that I did, it was called Comet. And uh, Sam Esmail uh, directed it. He's of um, Mr. Robot. Of course, um, yes. He's the, the great Sam Esmail. That, that's yeah. incredible. So. And it was great. It, you know, it was very stylized. You know, everything you see in Mr. Robot, it was in that, in that vein. But that was it for me. I realized, okay, I'm, I need to do both. I can't just do commercials. You know, I, I meet so many people who are commercial DPs and the narrative DPs are so jealous of them. They're so right. jealous that like, you know, the, it, it, there is a little bit of grass is always greener because with commercials, you sometimes get a, a very nice schedule. You get a very right. nice check. You get yeah. to, to move in, move out of, of jobs pretty quickly. You can do a lot right. of them. Uh, yeah. But then, of course, on the commercial side, so many commercial DPs I meet go like, I really want to do narrative. Narrative yeah. is, is yeah. where it's at. I want, I, want, I want to really like, you know, but I will tell you that the people I know who work a lot in commercials, they do their first sort of like lower budget narrative project. And then it really kicks their butt and they go like, I'm going to go back to yeah, commercials. Yeah. I'm gonna, They're I'm like, gonna, why the fuck would I do this? Yeah, well, I'm just torturing myself. It's, you yeah. know, <laughs> craft yeah. surface, it should not be an ice chest on an Apple box. You know, it right. shouldn't be this like thing. It's, yeah. It should, you know, you should have the creature comfort. So the, the so, grass so talk, is always greener in someone else's lawn until you, <laughs> until you get onto that lawn and then you see back at oh, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I get the feeling, though, on this Sam Esmail project, it's probably it probably didn't feel that way to you. You actually probably were like, wow, OK, I'm, I'm really into this, just as you said. And like yeah. you wanted to do more. You you got the bug. So, yeah, uh, yeah. 
So, so tell me about walking between those two worlds, walking between the commercial world and the narrative world, because I, I think that some people believe that it's all the same, right. but no, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty separate, pretty different, pretty, yeah. you know, different very agents, different, different, very different yeah. worlds for the most part. I, I, you know, it's, it just, it sort of depends on the project, but the commercial world, they used to not really cross pollinate at all. I think it's more so, more so now because there's so many incredible commercial DPs that I see that have sort of come up with that are doing incredible TV and movies now. I think there's a lot more crossover. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly the grass is always greener when you're doing a commercial. Because when I'm doing commercials for four months, I keep thinking, um, wow, I want to do a movie. And then, then I get to the movie and I'm like, why the fuck did I... <laughs> Why did I do that? <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I love them both. I think it's important to have balance because when you're doing commercial, you're working with new tools a lot of times and a lot more equipment and you're telling stories in a quicker way. And I've learned a ton from doing commercials that I, I take over into my narrative work and vice versa. I, you know, take it back. And now a lot of commercials that I get are because of my narrative experience. And it was great. It's great doing that because... Well, one, you have the resources when it's a commercial more than anything, but, but also, you, you know, you're, you're shooting it in a narrative way, which is great. It's not just about the product or. I agree. And I think that for some people, they, maybe they have a, a hard time finding the art in commerce with uh, commercials. But I will tell you that there's so much art. There's, oh, there's yeah. so much stuff you have to do and testing and pre-production and all the other stuff that really, I think, gets overlooked. Uh, people don't think about it because it's a commercial, because ultimately the goal at the end of the day is to separate someone from their money. Someone is supposed right. to buy a product or you know employ a service or, or whatever it is. But to get to that point you know, the number of people who are involved. It's like a feature. It's like a series. Right. There's so many people to actually get to that point. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, you're doing a, uh, a long-form uh, commercial, yeah. let's say, uh, something that might run several weeks or a month. Uh, how much prep time typically are you getting on, on a project like that? It's usually not too long. On commercials, you have much less prep than you do uh, on a feature. But the incredible thing about commercials now is it's not like commercials of the way, the way past where... You're just, you're overlighting things and it's just focusing on a product and you're, it's not cinematic. There's so many, you could be very cinematic with commercials now. You can shoot widescreen. You can, you don't have to blast the key light into the talent. Um, you can be understated and you can have, you can have the characters in shadows. I think that's what is making commercials even more fun to shoot now is using all the narrative tools to make it, to make it interesting and, and tell the story. So Eric, tell me about Frank and Lola. I know it went yeah. to Sundance. I know it was it was a bit of a hit. So tell me about that project. Yeah, um, Frank and Lola was an incredible experience. Um, that was my second film, actually. It was directed by Matthew Ross, and it was his first film. It took him ten years to get the film made. He he tried over and over again. He had so many times where it was about to get made, but it wasn't the right time. And finally, uh, he got funding and it went to Las Vegas. It was originally set in New York, but it changed to Las Vegas when the, the funding came from Las Vegas. And it was a small movie. It was uh, less than $2 million. So there was challenges with that, but we had incredible locations. Not a small cast. I mean, Michael Shannon, Justin uh, Long, uh, yes. yeah, Rosanna Arquette. I mean, it's like uh, Imogen Poots. It's like, you yeah. know, there's there's a lot of, you know, great, great people in that. So, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's, that's not bad for your second feature, man. That, no. That's really great. Yeah. And, and Michael Shannon is just such a, a, a fantastic actor. He's so precise. He's so he's so incredible with his emotions and how and how he uses that to tell the story. It was great working with an Imogen and, you know, Justin was my second time working with Justin and he's hilarious. 
So that was incredible. And then I, I brought my crew. I'd been working with the commercials, Don Reynolds, my, one of my longtime key grips and John Buckley, my gaffer, who's, who, um, since, uh, passed away actually during COVID. Um, oh, no. and he was, he, John was a, a legend. He, you know, he gaffed Titanic, he gaffed Avatar and why he gaffed my little $1 million film. Like, you know, I, it's, it was a blessing, but I think this one of the things that I, I talked to, uh, if I students about is when I was first coming out and I didn't know crew, I was like, you know, I had a gaffer that I normally worked with um, that I come up with that wasn't available. And I said, you know, I'm just going to ask some of the best and to work with me, you know, what, what do I have to lose? You know? And so like multiple phone calls later, John was one of those. So I, you know, I reached out to him, I showed him some of my stuff and he said yes. And that, and that was sort of the start of our relationship. We were a few movies together and uh, that was a lot of commercials and, um, he became a huge mentor to me. Um, so it was very sad when he passed away, but, um, you can see his, his touches in Frank and Lolo's. It was before, it was actually before LEDs were very prevalent. So, you know, there were a lot of Kina flows with magic cloth on it, very soft lights, and then just really use, utilizing master anamorphics, which had just come out for the space. And, you know, it was family experience. We, we shot eight, 14 days in Las Vegas and then maybe another five in Paris. And, uh, yeah, the, I love that movie. I wish. When it came out, it didn't get the the distribution that I we had hoped it would, but um, ultimately it got seen. It's on Netflix now, and people people see it. And um, Sundance that was my first experience at Sundance from that from that film, which is you never an forget your first itself. Sundance experience. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. Especially the waiting outside in the cold. That, that yes. that's, a, that's an experience that uh, you you never quite. I think I can still feel some of those lines all yes, these years later so. exactly <laughs> Ooh, um, yeah yeah well but virtual it, it sounds, this year i guess or, but uh, <laughs> uh yeah we, we yeah we did virtual this year it was it was actually kind of a, not a bad way to experience a film festival i, right. I, gotta, I, I i'm not gonna lie it's pretty good so yeah. but, uh, uh, well, Eric, hey, uh, I know we're quickly running out of time here, sure, but, and sure. I want to make sure that we get you out at a reasonable time. Tell sure. me, uh, where can people find you online? Do you have a website or someplace where if they want to see your work? Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe Instagram is best. It's uh, ericcords underscore dp, I believe. Yeah, my website's ericcords.com, K-O-R-E-T-Z. And those are the best places for it, really. Uh, or you could go on Netflix and watch my films. That, that's right. That's a good place too. So and, and TV uh, and TV, all all, the, all these places. Yeah, Ozark. Don't forget Ozark. Now you can watch the finale. So uh, you should all go out and do that. Hey, yeah. uh, it was a real delight having you on the show. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, I yeah. can't wait to see what you do next. And uh, you'll have to come back. Thanks, Ellie. I'd love to. All right, so that was Eric Kritz. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. Like I said at the end of that interview, I can't wait to uh, see what you do next. I watched Frank and Lola the other night, and it's on Netflix, and it's a, they call it a psychosexual thriller, and I agree. And boy, is it, it's, uh, it's fun. It's is a good it, movie. Is it both psycho and sexual? It is. It's actually both of those things. And it wow. also like takes place in Vegas and Paris, and yeah, it's, it's all over the place in a good way. Excellent. I'll check it out. Okay, so uh, Ben, it's that time again. Time to pay them bills. Let's pay them. All right, so we got to thank our good friends over at DZO Film, makers of fine entry-level cinema lenses. They make some uh, incredibly affordable full-frame 
PL mount, EF mount uh, cinema lenses, and they start as wide as 16, which is really, really impressive. It's a, the 16 is the only lens in the set that's a 2.8. The entire rest of the line is a T2.1, but they're tiny. They're like smaller than a 12-ounce can of soda. They are beautifully put together, and you get way, way more value for your money than uh, you would expect with uh, the, such a low price. They're, they're just over $1,000 for each one of these things, and really, they tick all the boxes. If you are, uh, you know, just getting into cinematography and you would like to have a professional, I mean, uh, an entry-level professional set of PL mount or EF mount lenses with with gears and everything else. They are I, they're all metal construction and they're really actually very very good optically. Uh, and an 80 millimeter front. Here I've just rattled off all these specs and stuff. But compared to what people and I don't want to throw any other brands under the bus, but <clears throat> some of those plastic fake cinema lens companies that have been around for a while, uh, this just blows them away. It blows them completely away, and they're absolutely worth looking at. And the Vespid Primes are available all over the place, but of course over at Hot Red Cameras, and we just got a new shipment of them because they've been really flying off the shelves lately, which I understand completely because they're a great price, they're very small, super compact, and uh, the only comment I had in, in ASC DPN recently who was like, do you think you could remove the name DZO film off of here just so I don't have people Googling to see how little I paid on, on, the, on these lenses? And I said, we could probably come up with something but you know uh, even if you take the name off doesn't stop it being uh the exact same uh just wonderful put, put a little piece of tape so, on it dude just, just little piece of tape little, yeah a little, little piece of, little piece of camera tape who cares yeah you know uh the, the things are always getting greeked out on set anyway i just watched a movie and gmc trucks became like omg trucks or something like OMG that it was, pretty, <laughs> it was pretty good yeah so yeah uh and you know for, for those of you out there who are not familiar with the term greek it basically means uh disguising the brand name of a product so that as the filmmaker as the you know the the media company you don't appear to be endorsing any brand or another and clearly this gmc suv that was featured in this movie they didn't pay for promotional consideration so it became an omg truck well, which i thought was pretty good i also just want to say it's not just about uh making it look like you're endorsing them you might not have the rights to use it so that's that's true too you know usually you, and you know if you're going to make a brand you know show them in not the best light then they might sue you and i know that that happened with a cliffhanger and a particular brand of climbing equipment there's a harness that fails at the beginning of Cliffhanger. And I remember that the company that made that harness, even though the name was never seen, they said it was so distinctive, they sued the filmmakers because they said, you know, our harnesses don't break like that. And you showed it breaking. And now it's going to negatively impact everyone's feeling about our product. So you got to be careful with what you do about with, uh, you yeah. know, those things when you're when you're making a movie with Sylvester Stallone and <laughs> well, even millions like, of dollars. You know, and even dumbass me, uh, you know, doing a horror movie. I remember we were trying to get product placement for a movie that I did that takes place in a grocery store so you're going to be seeing products on shelves left and right and so we were trying to get product placement but when you're making a horror movie like mm. nobody wants to see their product bludgeoning someone to death <laughs> yes uh yes for sure i i get it even a1 um, death bludgeons they don't want they don't want your product placement <laughs> so so did you guys have some fun with the like your your renaming of some of those brands and in, instead of like a1 steak sauce was it like you know b2 or something well uh, kind of uh not to go down too much of a rabbit hole but like you know the legality of it is you could go into a grocery store and film down an aisle and as long as you're not pulling a close-up of a1 steak sauce you're okay um, hmm. You know, it, even if it is identifiable as A1 steak sauce in your shot. Yeah. As long as you didn't go and single it yeah. out like that. Um, yeah. But for stuff that was singled out, we either had to get clearance 
in some cases we did get product placement like an energy drink gave us product that we got that we got to use and it's like anything like that that we got was was it brondo it was not I will not say. You'll have to go watch Alien Raiders and then you'll see it. And uh, and and ironically, there is uh, an ice cream company called UFO where they make a U- oh yeah UFO ice cream sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. They actually gave us some signage and stuff that we were able to use. I don't know that it was product placement. I don't know that they paid us for it, but they allowed us to use it. And since there were aliens in the grocery store, it was they felt good about it. It was yeah. it was a very unsubtle uh, <laughs> nod to the uh, actual plot of the movie with no subtext. And now, short ends. So anyway, Ilya, it is that time uh, for us to go into our short ends. What is your pet obsession of the week? Wow. Okay, so uh, I just got back early this morning from a a very, very early flight out of Portland, uh, where I was at the Portland Lens Summit. My obsession uh, this week is the Portland Lens Summit. And you're probably going, Portland Lens Summit? What the hell is that? Well, um, do they have jugglers? (laughs) <laughs> you know, actually, they they have a unicyclist who shows up. I in mean, fact, the, un- I the unicycler that that, shows that up. That guy's there at anything that happens in Portland. There's a unicyclist who juggles, right? He doesn't juggle. He plays the bagpipes, and they're not just any bagpipes. They're flaming bagpipes, and he plays them while wearing a Darth Vader mask, which is uh, that, and he's called the Unipiper. And sending, he plays like this, sending a lot of mixed messages at me. He's unicycling while wearing a Darth Vader mask, and and playing a bagpipe that's on fire. I mean, uh, pick a thing. Pick a lane, guy. Flaming bagpipes, yes. Uh. Pick, a, pick a fucking lane. <laughs> uh, you can find, you know what, I'll, I'll ask Alana Cody to please put a link to uh, the Unipiper on YouTube. So anyone who is uh, hearing the sound of my voice who would like to see what the hell I'm talking about, there's a pretty good YouTube video of him, like, riding in front of the Keep Portland Weird sign, playing, I think, like, you know, the, the Stormtrooper March or the Darth Vader March or whatever it is from, from Star well, Wars least, on the bagpipes. At least yeah. something is on brand. At least he's got some <laughs> kind. It's like he's... But, he's but, a, a, <laughs> Only doing covers of Coldplay. You're like, what? Okay. I don't get it. No, and he does wear a kilt because, you know, <laughs> the bagpipes. Well, course. again, that's that's on brand for the bagpipes. At least there's some consistency. <laughs> anyway, so so yes, despite the, you know, the, the Unipiper being there, that's not what the whole event is about. The event is ostensibly about lenses. And uh, actually, it's sort of a, a gathering of lens techs. And at least for the cinema industry, lens techs are, are a pretty rare and special breed. Uh, there's not that many of them out there. And a big chunk of them all come together and kind of geek out. It's like, you know, for the hardcore lens people, it's a lot of fun. Uh, a few other sort of lens related companies show up. A company called Crozeal that makes the world's greatest lens projector, which I've got on order and they're very, very late in delivering. So if they listen to this, I hope you get me my projector really soon. <laughs> uh, but they, they set up a projector in this room. Actually, it's, it takes place at Kerner Camera, which is the sort of professional rental house in Portland. They are like, you know, the number one, all the biggest shows, all the stuff goes through Kerner and they do this really great event. And every year it grows. And I got to say that uh, even though there was a pandemic and they didn't have the event in person for the last couple of years, I don't think they missed a step. I'd say that it seems like there was just as many people this year as there was in 2019. And every other trade event I've been to so far, like this year, so like NAB was half as many. So it's like the, it, Kerner continues to surprise and impress. And it's a really, you know, it's kind of incredible show. They did a very, very impressive. And I know you're not a huge drinker, Ben, but they had, if you can imagine, 12 taps and a trailer of beer and cider and thing. And it's like, they do a lot for the, the community there. They really try to make people feel welcoming. They, they also had a taco truck. 
And uh, they were very, very on the ball about being vaccinated. Like, you know, you showed up, you weren't getting in unless you showed your vaccination card. You you had to prove it. And there was someone who didn't have it. And they said, well, I'm sorry, we can't let you in. The person turned around and walked right away. So it was like, yeah, they were serious. They, if, if you were coming to that event, they were going to make sure that you at least had that piece of paper that said you were vaccinated. So and uh, and I got to say that it's a pretty darn good gathering of about 99% of the lens companies out there. And so all the big players are there, like, you know, your cooks and uh, your lights, uh, which is, of course, formerly called Leica. And then, you know, uh, other brands, too, like PS Technic were showing off their new anamorphic lenses, which are super cool and available in the U.S. from Hot Red Cameras, as well as uh, Caldwell. Caldwell, I don't think they do any other show, really, except for this one. And the Caldwell anamorphic lenses are spectacular, and uh, th- those were shown off. And, yeah, it was, and, you know, a company called Lawa was there, and Lawa, you know, does fun little lenses, macro lenses, probe lenses, all kinds of stuff like that. It is a ridiculous ridiculously good event if you wanted to go to one and there were people from all over the country and all over the world there are people who flew in from the east coast people flew in from other countries because if you actually are like you know you're thinking about making an investment which might be uh, i guess on the low end five or six thousand dollars but probably more likely like 50 60 to hundreds of thousands of dollars if we're talking about like the new ingenue or the new cook or the new leica lenses we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars for these comprehensive sets of 10 lenses and stuff like that you might want to actually look at them in person before you plunk down some money. It's it, it, you know, it makes sense to me. I mean, I, I would, you know, I'd want to drive a car before I before I bought it. it maybe makes sense to take a trip and play with some lenses before you you bought one sight unseen. And uh, yeah, it was it was really great. We uh, I met some people in from Canada, some people in from Brazil. It was uh, you know, look here, this is it's a total geek fest. But at the same time, if you're in this industry and if you think the lenses in some way impact your creative choices or or what you're doing and you want to talk to all the people who work for these manufacturers like you know Canon's there Fuji is there you get to talk to all these reps in person you get to actually put hands on you get to swap them on cameras you can record something you can make up your own test right there on the spot and put them in another room and project them it's like there's there's nowhere else you can really do that you can't do that at NAB can't do it at Cinegear and if you want to try to do that individually like through rental houses and stuff like that you can do it, but good luck. It's a, it's a big pain in the butt. And that's one of the things I thought that, you know, we really pride ourselves at Hot Red Cameras to be able to give somewhat of this experience, but to be able to do all of that in one place in two days, uh, there's nowhere else you can do that. And that's what makes Kerner Camera, Portland Lens Summit, something completely special and unique and why it's got so many fans from, from all over the world. I mean, is the place just like soaking with the top DPs in the world? Uh, there are some very talented people who show up for that. And there are some very talented DPs locally in, in Portland. But um, no, it's not just DPs. I would say rental house owners, people who spend, you know, at, spend perhaps millions of dollars on, on lenses. They show up to this. Uh, individual owner operators. I would say that it's a nice mix of people. But no, if you're one of the really top DPs, Typically, the way it works is you call up one of these companies and they arrange for a private test of some of the stuff. But, mm. but you know, I would argue that that's actually worse. I'd say that's worse than coming to the Lens Summit and actually getting a good overview of everything. And you could shoot a test there. But really, the way that most you know big time DPs want to do it is they want all their creature comforts and they want to do the absolute, you know, they want a private test. They don't want to have it, you know, a whole bunch of people around. And there are a whole bunch of people around there. So it, it may not be necessarily the best place for a... Uh, elaborate test probably a terrible place for an elaborate test but if you want to get a quick sort of introduction and kind of understand a little bit of something this place is really perfect for that 
Very cool. Sounds cool. I, I mean, like, sounds like something I would actually kind of enjoy, although I wonder if my eyes would glaze over <laughs> after a few hours. I actually met several directors that were there, and I think that there's a lot of directors who want to have a uh, intelligent conversation with their, their camera team about lenses. And uh, I think that there's a lot of directors who feel like, you know, they aren't entirely qualified for that. And I think that this is a good place because you can ask the questions, not in front of your DP, and be like, hey, I don't understand this exactly. Can you show me what this is all about? And the people there are generally really happy to oblige and, and get into all that, which is great. All right. So, Ben, what is your short end this week? Well, it's something I'm a little bit late to the party on, but I think YouTube is uh, the algorithm has finally figured out how to serve up exactly the kind of thing that I'm just going to watch over and over again. And one of the things it served up was something that I was aware of but hadn't really watched a lot of, which is a YouTube channel called The Slow-Mo Guys. Have you ever seen them? I have seen those. As a matter of fact, The Slow-Mo yeah. Guys was was your particular uh, catnip. You were, you were into it? I've been I've been checking it out. Yeah. So and it reminded me actually of you because you and I were at NAB the first time either one of us saw a phantom camera, which mm-hmm. is at the time was a military camera that they were using to say, like, hey, if we shoot a missile through this building, we need to shoot super high speed footage of it. And they were tired of shooting films. So they put a bunch of military money into developing a camera that could go higher frame rates. And then we were at NAB, like, I think the first year that Phantom was there to promote it as like, hey, maybe filmmakers would want to go higher speed than I I think the highest digital cameras could go at the time was like 60 frames per second. And it was all based on like, well, you're you're basically doubling 30 frames per second, which was the, the highest basic speed that it would run at. And I kept being told by manufacturers, like, yeah, you're never going to get any faster than that with digital. And then you and I turn the corner and we're looking at this phantom camera and it's like, thousand frames whole, yeah, exactly. holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was watching uh, one of the videos that they have and we could link it in show notes, maybe was them. Uh, it's the two guys. It's uh, Gavin and Dan. And they were shooting bullets through eggs. Oh, yeah. That's that's and, that's famous. It's so good. And they crank it ultimately up to a million frames per second. You can see what's going on a million frames per second. They're using, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know how off the shelf, but they're using regular old Phantom cameras. Yeah, they're not so off the shelf. Those cameras that go those sort of high speeds. What actually happens is you window the sensor smaller and smaller and smaller. And the million frame per second one is uh, is like a military one. It's very, very expensive. And generally, uh, usually they're in black and white, but I know they make a color one. And I'm sure they got a hold of that. And that's a and that. No, no. On the on the shooting a bullet through the egg, it was windowed way in when they got to a million frames per second. And it was crazy low resolution. But there was just something like insane about watching stuff at a million frames per second. But what I like about it is they kind of talk you through the process of figuring out how to do whatever they're doing in slow motion, how they're going to quantify it. Like there was one where they were like breaking large sheets of glass in slow motion and and showing you how the fractures (laughs) ripple across it. It's just a fascinating channel. And, uh, you know, they keep saying like everything looks better in slow motion. And it's true. Everything does look like just infinitely more interesting in slow motion just because it's so ordinary, like an egg, and yet so exotic to see an egg slow down like that. And uh, uh, there was one that they did where they covered a trampoline with mousetraps, and the Dan guy jumped off of a ladder into the mousetraps. Something I would not do, by the way. I'm like, oh yeah, that's going to hurt a lot. It might, I might have to go to the hospital. 
but yeah. um, he was fine. But it was it's interesting because a lot of times they're kind of showing the pattern, the phenomenology of like here's here's what happens when we do this, and when you slow it down to thirty frames per second or something, you can really see patterns in it that you wouldn't see in other places and i feel like for uh there was a, a vfx guy who i worked with who's also a, a director named uh, matt santoro and he's a really just an unbelievably accomplished guy and i remember he would always find stuff like that as reference for visual effects for you know and it, you know stuff that's like extreme um macro or extreme slow motion or whatever like it's worth seeing as a filmmaker it's worth understanding how the tech works and also like how emotionally it works when you watch it like how does it make you feel it's just interesting and it's it's fun to watch all the weird experiments that these two dudes come up with I, I don't want to blow your mind here or anything, but uh, you remember I used to work for this company, Dalsa. Well, you know. Uh, Never heard of them. Yeah, they had a sensor, if I recall correctly, that they used to photograph light. <laughs> like, you know, and you know how fast light goes. It was yeah. something like a trillion frames per second. Just to, you know. To, to if I'm that, not or, mistaken, or, light moves at the speed of light. Yes, exactly. So, right. the, so, but you can get glimpses of photons when you go that fast. And actually, I want to say it was like, 300 trillion or something like that it is some such a ridiculous speed i have no idea how they do it i think they can only take it for a very short period of time and you can only use it for like you know very very specific things and the resolution i think is very very low but they had something that was like this insane like 300 trillion frame per second camera which was not practical for anything that you would want to use it for but if you wanted to capture like particles flying you know really fast that was yeah that was that was a thing Scientific cameras are where it's at, man. Well, and also, like, I, I remember in the 90s, um, a friend of mine who's a special effects guy was describing, he was working on a car commercial where they were showing, they were filming a, an airbag deploying at an extremely high speed. And they had the highest speed 35 millimeter camera. I have no idea what it was. And he was telling me what a nightmare it was to, to shoot with because, you know, it's like when you oh, think yeah. about it, it that terrible. film is flying through there it can shred the sprockets um it can photosonics if it jams it can damage the camera because where the movement and everything is would just fill with with film and instantly and they would have to be picking it out <laughs> that's right and obviously it also needed like way more light and i know the phantom needs light anything super high speed is going to need light but being able to use modern sensors and be able to you know go above you know probably what 400 asa is going to make a big difference for high speed and also you don't need an entire team of people to do it when you watch this you realize like yeah one one schmo in a camera and if as long as you know how to set your lens and set your f-stop and all that stuff you're going to be good to go and uh, I, I just love how it's democratized that kind of thing a lot of people don't think about it but in the era of film you had to stop the film in order for a picture to be exposed. And so think about how fast it had to go, how what a brief period of time it had to come to a complete stop and then have you know the image exposed there and then advance to the next one. So there was all this stuff happening all, all in such tiny fractions of a moment. Uh, there was one film camera manufacturer, they said, forget a shutter, forget stopping the film anymore. We're gonna use a rotating prism that is synchronized with the film. So as the film is flying through the gate, it's not really a gate. We now have a prism that is starting to paint the light across the moving film so it never has to stop and it starts high and it ends low. It was a bit of engineering marvel 
but it was actually because it had to go through that extra piece of glass and was moving like that. It was like it wasn't particularly sharp and it wasn't particularly the, the best system out there. And what was the name of that camera? I've never heard of that. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, you know, it's inside the American Cinematographer's Manual going back probably, you know, to the sixth version or something like that. I've got it somewhere. I could look it up, but there's a whole bunch of high speed cameras. You know, hey, this is the weird thing about L.A. You know, L.A., you throw a rock, you hit someone who works in the industry. And my next door neighbor, when I, when I moved into Van Nuys, was a high speed film cameraman. He, he, you know, that's all he did was high speed and he worked with Photosonics and all these, these other systems. And, uh, you know, the stories smoke would come out of them. You know, the, the, the things would sometimes rattle and fall apart. I mean, they had to spin up to this really, really high rate of speed and you only had a certain amount of film that could go in there and blow through it really fast. And yeah, if it, if the film, you know, tore or jammed or anything, that was a really expensive mistake and cleaning up your camera could take, you know, the rest of the day. It could be a really. I love hearing the stories of the ingenuity to do stuff like that. Like I remember talking to Jacques Heitken, who mm. shot the original Nightmare on Elm Street, who we've threatened to get on the show at some point. And uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, landmark horror movie, you know, arguably Wes Craven's best film, or certainly one of my favorites of all time. And there's a famous shot in that where it's the girls in slow motion uh, skipping over the rope and it's all dreamy and bloomy and you know saturated and crazy looking and the camera dollies over and slowly moves into real speed and at the time in the early 80s they didn't have cameras that had a speed change on them like they did you know even in the mid 90s and, and, and it resolves to real speed with sync sound and while that's happening the dreamy filter goes away the way Jacques did it was they had like a Variac plugged into that camera and some one guy was just riding the Variac and changing the speed of the camera motor. One guy was pulling the iris, one person <laughs> was pulling focus, and then for the dreamy thing, they had a super long filter made that was just clear glass on one end and like double whatever pro mist on the other end so it was all bloomy and pretty. And so you have one camera assistant just slowly pulling that through the whole shot. And it's, I believe, on a dolly. So you have a dolly, a focus pull, an iris pull, a variac pull, and a filter pull. And, you know, I, I dare say there's a thousand ways you could pull that shot off today that would not be nearly as hard or impressive as that. Well, uh, just to answer your question, I did a quick Google search. And uh, actually, that camera I was talking about with the rotating prism was called a Fastax. And the Fastax was actually originally developed by Bell Labs. And they made an 8 millimeter, a 16 millimeter, and a 35 millimeter version. And they went really fast. The 8 millimeter version actually had the fastest speed. It would go up to 18,000 frames per second. What? Yeah. <laughs> How do you get 18,000 frames of Super 8 or uh, 8 millimeter? You have a custom, probably 400 foot spool made of 8 millimeter film. That, I'm guessing that's what they, they wow. do. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, it looks like you could do like 5,000 in uh, 35 and 10,000 in 16. So, yeah. Nuts. Well, I'm only interested in the in the eight millimeter version of it, but that still sounds awesome. <laughs> anyway, so so Ben, I think that just about does it for this week. Where can people find you? Where I, indeed? <laughs> where, it's a mystery. Where where can people track you down? They want to they want well, to reach you. I won't go into any more story about it ever again. I promise to not talk about it. But benrock.com. <laughs> go to benrock.com. You got you can find all my socials on there. You can friend me on LinkedIn or whatever, follow me on Twitter, say hi, say that you're a fan of the show or uh, a fan that's self-serving, but say you listen to the show. Well, uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. And you know what? If you are a fan of the show and you do come in, uh, you there's a Hot Rod t-shirt in it for you. Just, you know, uh, come on in at say, hey, I listened to the podcast. 
can I get that shirt? Someone will hook you up with a shirt. Where we 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 we've been doing it. We still got some shirts left. So so why not? Uh, you can, I wore my I wore my shirt to the beach uh, a couple weeks ago. You went to the beach? I did. I did. It's because I have a child. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I was gonna say that. I don't know what else could get you there. So <laughs> yeah. Well, I was gonna say you spend a lot of time like you know laying out, getting tan, sun tanning. No, no, no. Just chasing okay. a kid along the beach, hoping that nobody drowns. Okay. Yeah. So Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we thank? Uh, well, first and foremost, as always, Alana Cody, who uh, arranges all these amazing interviews and uh, and gets us to talk to some of our heroes. Yeah, and uh, we got a couple of uh, ones we've been sitting on for months. Oh no, years even that are about that. Well, the movies that that are related to them are about to come out, so they're finally going to come out. So the next couple of weeks, we got some some stuff that are older interviews, but uh, we held them because now people will be able to see. What it is we're talking about, man? Great. If we ever if we ever talk to the DP of the day the clown cried, we'd be screwed because they're never going to release that movie. I think that Jerry Lewis said it could be released like after he was dead for twenty years or something. So we have to wait until oh god, I don't even want to think about well, it. Well, we don't have that problem. We didn't we didn't interview that guy, so it's not too late. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Appreciate that. I'll, I'll get my Ouija board. Let, let's also thank Kay Zalatrachi. Kays, thank you for the music, the wonderful music that you uh, have uh, graciously donated to the show. And uh, when I see you on Thursday this week, which is going to be after this episode drops, I'm going to talk to you about music. I'm going to talk to you about more music, music possibly for maybe like next season of the Cinematography Podcast. Well, and uh, and for anyone who likes our music, please go to musicbykays.com and uh, check out some of his work and uh, consider hiring him for composing a score or doing cgi on your next film or color grading or, or uh, directing just, or just music you know yeah music he, he he could probably do it in his sleep so at this point yeah 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 and let's thank ben katz ben katz we probably said um a few times in this episode maybe maybe, maybe had a couple of false starts thanks for making us sound sane that <laughs> i appreciate that less doltish yeah that's good uh, all right, Ben, what's left? We thank some people. We want to tell people to uh, go check out our website, camnoir.com. You can go see all, you know, all the archive of all the shows, read the show notes, click on links, find more information. Anything, yeah. Anything else? Anything else you got? I think we're covered, man. <laughs> I don't know what else there is. There's no one's listening. There's nothing left. Yeah, everyone is everyone is clearly, you know, turned off their podcast by now. Okay. Uh, hey, thanks everyone for listening and we'll be back next week with another episode. All right. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.